for some time, at least for the better part of the year, I have been reflecting on the subject of biblical worship in various contexts, whether it is Sunday morning or Sunday evening or Wednesday Bible study. We have spent some time over those months looking at worship in the Old Testament and worship in the New Testament and surveyed its progress and development in the biblical canon. What I want to do this evening is to introduce worship as it appears to us in the book of Revelation. I must confess that much of what I say this evening will appear as though it is a lecture, and the reason is the material which was prepared for that purpose. And so you want to ask you before I even begin to forgive me for the tenor, at least the tone of this delivery. John wrote Revelation in response to a vision that he received on the Isle of Patmos. Patmos, which is approximately 88 miles off the southwest coast of Asia Minor, he wrote this circular letter to the seven churches of Asia Minor in what we now know as Western Turkey. He wrote in approximately AD 95. And the book of Revelation, which I intend if God so wills, to preach in his entirety again. The book begins with apocalypse, because the word revelation is, in the Greek, apocalypse. And so if you take your New Testament and you open in the Greek the book of Revelation, you're going to see apocalypse. And it means revelation. It means disclosure. It means unveiling. And that is a language that appears in the first verse of the book. The revelation, the unveiling, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And so this matter before us is the unveiling, the revelation of Christ. The book of Revelation is seen by many to be like a foreign country. Very hard to navigate very hard to understand. And one of the problems, I think, with Revelation is the lack of recognition that we're dealing with a particular literary genre called apocalypse. It is a particular different genre, for instance, from didactic teachings that you have in Pauline epistles or for even the Gospels or historical narratives in the Old Testament. Apocalypse was a particular genre in the scriptures. And it very often refers to revelation that was mediated through angels. Revelation given in pictorial and symbolic fashion. And thus how one interprets revelation means that one must be able to decipher the symbols that are written and are given. Now John was on the Isle of Patmos imprisoned there for his faith when he received this vision from the Lord. Persecution had broken out against the church under Domitian. Domitian was the one who insisted that he should be recognized as Dominus Edus, Lord and God. 
And he had a litmus test that whenever someone came to him and approached him, they must offer a sacrifice before his image. And very often Christians would find themselves in difficulties because they could not refer to to Domitian as Dominus Edus, nor could they bow down and worship his, his image. And so Christians were being persecuted. And questions were raised among Christians. Who is in charge? Are we subject to the whim and the fancy of the Roman emperor? Or is God really on the throne? And John taken to this backwater place, this arid place of Patmos, is given a view of God as central on his throne, as the one who rules, that God is the one who's on the throne and that he is king. Now this book has much for us to consider, but it is a book that considers and perhaps provides the bulk of the biblical teaching on this subject of worship. In fact, when you look at Revelation, you must understand that this book is constructed around three main cycles of judgment. There are the seven, the first seven seals, which run from chapter 6 to chapter 8, verse 5. Then there are the seven trumpets, another set of judgment, from chapter 8, verse 6 to chapter 11, verse 19. And chapter 15 and 16, you have the seven bowls. But before that, in chapters 12 to 14, you have an interlude where there are seven significant signs. That's the basic framework of the book. And it is in this framework, as you look at these three major cycles of judgment, with the interlude of the seven signs, the writer has much to say about worship. Revelation contains many pictorial scenes and many lexical references to worship. There are, in fact, some 24 times when proskuno, to bow down, is used for worship. So whereas, whereas the Old Testament considers the centralization of worship, particularly in the tabernacle and the temple, and the New Testament focuses on the transformation of worship with Christ as central to that worship, the book of Revelation focuses particularly on the perfection or the consummation of worship. Now, what I want to do is to look at worship under three rubrics, under three headings. First of all, the prerequisite for worship. Secondly, the object of worship. And thirdly, the character of worship. I'm not suggesting we're going to be able to finish these, but we're going to look first at these three areas of worship presented in Revelation, the prerequisite for worship, the object of worship, and the character of worship. John introduces this full-blown treatment on the subject of worship and begins with the prerequisite for worship in chapter 1 with the vision of the glorious and transcendent Lord Jesus Christ, running from verse 9 to verse 20, chapter 1. John 
narrates his first revelatory encounter with Jesus on the Isle of Patmos. You see, although he was on this penal colony, far away from family and friends, he was not far away from God. And he says, on the Lord's Day, that was the first day of the week, a Sunday, he was in the spirit, in a trance-like state. And he hears this mighty voice, which he describes like a trumpet, which says to him, come up here. John receives revelation. And the writer commands him to write in a book what he sees and sends it to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Upon turning to see the speaker, John says he distinguishes seven lampstands, chapter, 12, chapter 1, 12 to 13, which represent the seven churches of Asia Minor. We know that in verse 20. In the midst of the lampstand, he sees one like the Son of Man. And there is the imagery of the figure who appeared in Daniel 7, verse 13. A divine figure. And we're given a description of this one who is like the Son of Man in verses 13 to 16, which outstrips any portrait we have of Christ in the Gospels. In the Gospels, someone wrote, our Lord Jesus Christ was approachable. But here, he's overawing us. John describes this figure of the exalted Christ as wearing a long gown, the garment of kings. He has a golden sash across his chest. He's dressed in royal, kingly attire. John says his hair is white as wool, as snow. It's not that this figure has aged prematurely. He's carrying all the problems of the world. You ever wonder how the President of the United States go in with wonderful black hair, and after a few, <laughs> a couple of years, he's just changed. It doesn't happen to our Prime Minister. Obviously, we don't have a lot of problems in Canada. <laughs> it's not that this figure was carrying the burden of the world on his shoulders and the pressure was so great that he has grayed prematurely. No, his hair as white as wool suggests wisdom. He's replete with wisdom and insight and intelligence. And of course, the imagery goes back to Daniel 7 and verse 9. John is using language reserved in the Old Testament for God Almighty to describe the glorious Christ. John says his eyes are like a flame of fire, emphasizing the ability of the glorious and exalted Christ to penetrate the inmost thoughts and secrets of the heart and to burn away the sham and the hypocrisy, his eyes are like flame fire. To offer us an idea of his indomitable strength, 
and his stability. The seer describes his feet like burnished bronze. He's strong and powerful, immovable. He likens his voice to the sound of many waters. An image of great authority invested in this mighty person of the exalted Christ. And John says, this one who he has described in royal figure, this one who carries the imprimatur of divinity, this one who is holy and perfect in all of his ways, John says he has the seven stars in his right hand. It is he who sustains and carries and preserves his church. John describes him as the one who has a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. An illustration of the power of his word. You've got to be very careful when you read in Revelation about the battle of Armageddon in chapter 20. This is not going to be a physical battle. Our Lord Jesus does not need tanks and guns and rockets to defeat his enemies. He slays them with the breath of his nostril. He slays them merely with his word. And John says he sees a two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth, showing the power of his word to, to in fact, execute his will. It is this awesome Christ that John sees walking among his people in his church, dressed in a majestic robe with a golden sash, with pure white hair, blazing eyes, burning feet, a voice that is powerful, hands that are powerful, in fact, words that are sharper than a two-edged sword, and shining face. All of this set him apart from ordinary mortals. His luminous appearance in the vesture of majesty places him in sharp relief to all earthly kings and majesty. In verses 17 to 20, John advances beyond the royal attire of Christ to look at the shattering effect this had on the writer himself. Utterly overwhelmed by the vision of the glorious Christ, he states, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead in verse 17. I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me and saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades, that is of the grave. I have the keys of Hades and of death. See, John knew Jesus. He was familiar with him. We believe that this was John, the beloved who wrote this epistle. He was the one who leaned on the breast of Jesus. He was close to Jesus. He belonged to that inner circle that the Lord would take to the Mount of Transfiguration. He knew the Lord Jesus Christ intimately. 
But when he sees the glorified Christ, he does not recall his treasured relationship with him on earth, but he falls at his feet though as though dead. But despite the dread and despite the light and despite the powerful voice, behind the exalted state of Jesus, John discovers the same compassionate Savior and friend because his purpose was not to frighten him, but to reassure him. And he does so with a touch. So this vision communicates the reality that true worship always begins with an apprehension of the transcendent greatness of Christ. No one can worship God aright if he or she views the Lord Jesus Christ as merely ordinary. We cannot worship that which is ordinary. And what John does is that he presents to these seven churches and to all of us the extraordinary Christ. The Christ who is exalted in heaven. The Christ who is above all. And this vision invites at least these three conclusions. One, that we must appreciate the greatness and the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we must develop a humble attitude before him. And third, we must seek to experience his gentle touch as Guthrie tells us in his article, Worship in the Book of Revelation. We see the prerequisite. worship, which is a vision of a glorious Christ. But Revelation shows us not only the prerequisite for worship, which is a glorious Christ, it shows us the proper object of worship. And that's what you find in chapter 4 and 5. Both chapters present to us the object of worship. And what John does in chapter 4 is that he underlines That God the Father is the object of worship. John, in chapter 4, perceives an open door in heaven. The mysterious, the hidden, is open to him. He's on earth, taken up by the Spirit, and looks into heaven. The curtain of history, the curtain of the future is drawn back and he sees that which is not readily evident to human eyes. He sees into heaven and he hears this trumpet voice summoning him into heaven. Come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. And John is in the spirit, in a visionary state. And when he looks into heaven, the first thing he sees is a throne. He says, and immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne 
set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. In Revelation, thronus is central. God on the throne is a core reality in Revelation. In the Old Testament, the throne symbolized the absolute authority, the power, the sovereignty of God. In fact, 47 out of 62 New Testament references to throne occur in Revelation. And 14 of these references to throne appear in chapter 4. Because whatever else we must take away about God, the God who is at the center of worship, is that God is on the throne, that God is sovereign. And the writer must insist upon this because this was the question at issue. Christians are bombarded with trouble. They are being persecuted. And they're asking, is it the emperor who rules or is it God? And so the Lord opens heaven and shows John himself seated on the throne. The throne that is above every throne. You know, it's not that God showed him himself seated on, on a throne. God opens heaven and gives him a vision of himself in heaven above every earthly throne. This throne, its location is important. It's the throne in heaven of which there is no greater throne. And on the throne that is above every throne, God is seated. And so it answers the question pictorially, who is in charge? And the only answer that can be given is that the Lord, Pantocrates, the Lord Almighty, is supreme and rules. John tells us that he looks into heaven and he sees one who is seated on the throne in verse 2. And he describes the one on the throne. Very interestingly, he doesn't give a picture that is human, a, a human description as he gives of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because you know why? He's describing God the Father and God is Spirit. What he shows you, however, are the externals. There is no blazing eye. There is no gray hair. There is no sword coming from his mouth. There is no hand holding the stars. What he shows you are the external manifestation of the one on the throne. And what he describes essentially is one who is surrounded by brilliant light. He describes light in terms of precious stones. So he says, for instance, that the one who sat on the throne was like a jasper, a translucent rock or crystal, possibly a diamond. He goes on to describe the one on the throne as Sardis stone, which was seen as a red stone, where at the heart of the stone was like fire blazing. He portrays the one who sits on the throne. Essentially, as one covered with light. 
His brilliance is like an emerald. All of this is a description of precious stones, bright light, red light, to show the glory of God. And when you read in the Old Testament, in Psalm 102, verse 2, the psalmist says, Who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 15 to 16, about God, he's the only blessed, the only potentate, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. When John looks into heaven, he sees the throne of God, and he sees God on the throne, but he doesn't see a figure. He sees blazing light. What he sees is a glorious manifestation of God. And he doesn't dwell there. He moves rapidly from the description of the one on the throne to the activities surrounding the throne. First, in verses 4 and following, of course, this idea you know, of God on the throne and bright light and there was a rainbow around the throne in, a, in verse 3. That, that shows you that though God is a God of glory, the ro- rainbow reminds us of God's greatness, of his faithfulness. He's a faithful God. Now John goes on in verse 4 and following. He begins to show you the activities around the throne. And what he says, he says he sees 24 thrones with 24 elders, presbyteros, clothed in white, with golden crowns around the central throne. So what he sees, he sees a throne in heaven, he sees light emanating from the throne, and around this throne he sees 24 other thrones. And on each of these is seated an elder. These elders, we believe, typify a higher order of angelic beings. The 24 elders represent the entire body of the church. Both the Old Testament church, represented by the 12 tribes of Israel, and the New Testament church, represented by the 12 apostles. They are representing all of God's people throughout history, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. And these elders primarily function in the role of worshipers. We can see that throughout this book. Notice it says, And around the throne were 24 elders, and on the throne I saw 24, were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightning, thundering, and voices. See, the picture continues to amaze. First of all, he sees brilliant light in the preceding verse, in verse 3, coming from the throne. Now he says there is lightning, there's thundering, showing you the awesome God, and voices, and seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, John says, there was a sea 
of glass like crystal. Taking you back to the book of Ezekiel in chapter 1. And he says, around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had the face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And what is being conveyed here in these four creatures, again, drawing upon the book of Ezekiel chapter 1, these living creatures, these angelic beings, they represent the lion, the bullock, the human being, the, e- the eagle. And these, these creatures that are represented represent the noblest, the strongest, the wisest, and the swiftest of God's creatures. In other words, these four creatures, whereas the 24 elders represent the church, these four creatures represent the entirety of God's creation, both of the animal kingdom and, of course, human beings. Each, he says, had six wings, drawn from the image of the seraphim in Isaiah 6. They were full of eyes. They were given comprehensive wisdom with which to serve God. What's the picture? Here's a picture of God on the throne. Radiating light in absolute splendor. He's surrounded by an outer ring of 24 elders. And an inner ring of these four creatures. These who are the inner circle. These four creatures... They are the guardians of the throne of God. There seem to be graded steps in approaching God. That is one, if he is to come before God, must penetrate the outer ring of 24 elders. And when he has penetrated that ring, he still has to pass these guardians of the throne. These four creatures. Showing you that God is holy. And that is what you hear from these four living creatures. We are told that they were full of eyes in verse 8. Around and within. And they do not rest day or night saying holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What we call the Trisagon. Three times we have holy, holy, holy. We have it in Isaiah. Well, these three holies, but we have it in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3. And we have it here in Revelation 4 verse 8. They're praising the Lord who is God Almighty. Who is and who was and is to come. Who is eternal. Their worship turns on the character of God who is holy and almighty and eternal. But these four creatures are not worshipping God alone. They are worshipping in concert with the 24 elders. This is a beautiful picture. In verse 9, when the living creatures, when these four creatures who are gathered around or circling the throne, give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, we are told that the 24 elders who are seated in the outer ring on thrones, that these 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever 
and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. What John sees is heaven ablaze with light. And what he sees is an atmosphere of praise. What he hears in heaven, without any rest, without any break, are these four creatures praising. Verse 8, go back there. They weren't doing it when they felt like. They were doing it all the time. He says, they do not rest day or night. All they're saying is holy, holy, holy. And 24 creatures. We are told that as they worship the 24 creatures, the 24 elders fall down on their face before him who sits on the throne. D.W. McCullough in the book The Trivialization of God, The Dangerous Illusion of a Manageable Deity, says, We are unaccustomed with mystery. We do not appreciate Abraham falling on his face or Moses hiding in terror or Isaiah crying, who is woe is me, or Saul being knocked flat. We don't appreciate majesty. He says the New Testament warns us to offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. But reverence and awe have been replaced by a yarn of familiarity. The fire has been domesticated into a candle flame, adding a bit of religious atmosphere. But no heat, no blinding light, no power, no purification. We prefer the illusion of a safer deity, and we have pared him down to manageable proportions. The God that is worshipped here cannot be pared down to manageable proportions. The four creatures are saying, Holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The 24 creatures are falling down on their faces. They're casting their crowns before him. They're saying, You are worthy, O Lord. And you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things and by your will they exist. The picture here, my friends, is not of studied praise but indeed that which comes spontaneous. What happens is that these 24 creatures, they're on the throne and they're looking at God on his throne. 
and as they gaze upon him, they are overcome with awe. And they fall down from the throne on their faces and cast their crowns before him. And they get back up and they gaze upon him. And around them the four creatures are crying, holy, holy, and they fall down again. And they get up again and they look at him on the throne and what happens? They fall down and they keep doing that for eternity. Because they're seeing the glory of God. They're seeing the brilliance of God. And the more they see of him, the more awe they have of him. And they keep on falling over and over. Not by studied repetition, but they overcome by majesty. They are praising God who is worthy because he is creator. They praise him for his power in creation. They praise him because all things exist by his sovereign will. They're praising him with song. They're praising with worship. Their hymns of praise belong to a catena of hymns in Revelation. Found in chapter 4, 8 to 11. Chapter 5, 9 to 14. Chapter 7, 9 to 12. Chapter 11, 15 to 18. Chapter 12, 10 to 21. Chapter 15, 3 to 4. Right throughout Revelation you find these hymns. They are not sporadic but a continuous activity demanded of creatures who prostrate themselves before God. What Revelation tells us is that if we are to worship God, we must see Christ. We must have a vision of Jesus Christ who has been risen, who has been raised from the dead, and who exists as King of glory in the midst of his church. But Revelation reminds us that we are called to worship God. That we are called to humble ourselves in dependence and in awe and reverence for God. That we are called to praise him. That we are called to submit to him. True worship requires not only sight of the glory of God, but indeed the response of praise and reverence before his majesty. I want you to know, that the greatest and the best of the heavenly creatures think and consider their rightful place at the feet of God. And that should stir us that we are only truly in an appropriate position when we have bowed our hearts to God. That only when we have come to recognize the greatness of God and are willing to extol Him and are willing to submit ourselves to him, only then do we truly worship. Worship in Revelation places God at the center. It's never about us. It is always about God. And we must, if we are to worship, we must set the Lord always before us. We must have a high view of God. We must not seek to pare him down to manageable proportions. We must remember that with God, there is that which causes us to tremble, that which draws us near, and that which repels us. God is majestic. And what we need in our churches today, I, I listen to a lot of the singing, and I hear a lot of things that pass as worship, but what is missing is a view, a high view of God. 
because you see, when we see God, when we truly see God, there's only one thing to do but fall down before him. When we truly see God, there's only one thing to do but to extol him as worthy and as holy. Are you a worshiper of God? You and I have been created for this purpose. You're not from this world, not in this world to make money. We were not created to make money. We were not created to take care of our families. We were not even created to take care of ourselves. We were created for this task, to worship. We were created for God. My prayer is that in our dealings, in our movements, in this world that we will see God on the throne. Sovereign, powerful, glorious, holy, and worthy. And the best thing you can do this evening is to submit yourself to him. Let's be very clear. You will be a worshiper gladly, willingly, or reluctantly. All men will worship God. All men and women will declare him to be worthy. The only difference is that some will do it willingly and gladly and some will be forced to do it. But every knee will bow to this throne and every tongue will confess that this king is the true king. May God grant that you this evening will bow to God. Recognize his holiness, recognize his grace and faithfulness, recognize his majesty. And with the help that the Spirit of God gives you to say, Lord, I adore you. Lord, I worship you. For Jesus' sake. Amen.